You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. A very special discussion about how people use social media during times of crisis with Leisha Palin, assistant professor and researcher at the Connective IT Lab at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Not only does it need to be well-designed, it needs to be um, pretty uh, robust and be able to handle a lot of hits um, unexpectedly, um, because that's often what happens. There can be a really excellent website by, um, by an agency, and then when something goes wrong, it's, just, it, 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 it's rendered unusable, unusable just because people can't get to it. Leisha Palin, assistant professor and researcher at the Connective IT Lab at the University of Colorado at Boulder, goes on the record online about how people use social media during a crisis. Just how accurate the information people find via social media is during a crisis, and a new perspective on the value of the social media back channel for organizational communicators, particularly during a crisis, all that and a great deal more after this. Hi, this is Chris Bechtel, and I'm the Vice President of Products and Services with iPressroom. Today, we're talking about one of our core offerings, the online press room. Using iPressroom's media platform content management system, non-technical communications pros can easily upload, manage, measure, and distribute their content in a full-featured, branded online press room. See pressroom.target.com for an example. The same is available on a smaller scale as well for nonprofits, smaller organizations, and mid-sized companies. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to email us questions to info at ipressroom.com or visit us on the web at www.ipressroom.com slash demo. Leisha Palin, assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you. Now, you're involved uh, in a research program at the University of Boulder, which is focused largely on how people use social media during times of crisis, disaster, and emergency. Um, in the world of social science, what are the differences between a crisis and a disaster and an emergency? My lab um, has, has for, for some time now, looked broadly at issues of what we, what we call commu- uh, computer-mediated communication under so-called normal conditions, and now in the last four years, increasingly under non-routine situations. And by non-routine, I mean these large-scale kinds of um, uh, impacts and disruptions on uh, extended ex- uh, on, on social life. And so, your question about what is a disaster, what is a crisis, what is, a, was, what is an emergency, is really a core question here, and something that. Um, Several people have investigated, including um, sociologists um, who try to to determine what exactly is a disaster per se. Um, there are some real distinctions, I think, between the kinds of events we've looked at, some of which have been crime-based violence that have um, um, have reached have received a lot of attention nationally and internationally. Some are disasters from um, natural hazards, and some are kind of on the scale of accidents. 
Um, from my point of view, for the kinds of things we study from a computer-mediated communication point of view, with the goal of moving towards um, building better tools and software architectures to support the inevitable kind of activity that people are showing us that they will do and want to do when they have the right tools in hand, we think of these things not as, we don't treat them um, empirically and theoretically as the same, but we think of them similarly from, because from, the, from a person's point of view who's involved in these things, they react, I believe, in similar ways if they have the same kinds of tools in hand. So from, from a person's point of view on the ground, they might see something happening at the corner of 6th and Main. And they don't know a bombing, say. They don't know if this is a local thing and it's just at, the, at 6th and Main or if it's part of a much larger set of concerns. They don't know that yet. But the way they might behave and the information they might start generating um, is going to be um, possible because of the kinds of tools and c- the connections that they have in hand and who they're talking to. So from that point of view, um, we don't always make the distinction. When we try to think about it in terms of broad impact, we do think about those distinctions because how we translate our work into matters of policy, into matters of practice for emergency management, then those things really do make a difference. Now, social media is Facebook, it's MySpace, it's Twitter, it's the blogosphere, and, and so many other emerging social networks. As a researcher, it's not like you can just do a Google search and find everything you need readily available. So when you're doing research on how people use social media during a crisis, how do you get your arms around all the information when it lives in so many different communications technology silos? That's another, that's another excellent question, and it's the problem we deal with every day. And in dealing with that problem of how can we conduct good, thorough research to make sure when we say, oh, we've looked at this particular event or we looked at this particular event, we, we never, it's true, we never quite know, and this is what makes doing what's called Internet ethnography or digital ethnography, um, what makes it so difficult is that it's very hard to know how, what the bounds of it are. And so then it's hard to know, is this a good sample? Is this a good sample? Is this a good sample? So, so what we're trying to do constantly is to make sure we have a good, we have good methods towards, um, making sure that we have a good sense of what's going on out there. And, when, um, and, and, and then we fold that back into our very research aims, which um, include collaborations with people who do um, visualizations of what's happening on the web, of web, web activity, and people who are doing uh, software engineering for um, information integration is what it's called. And so what we want to do is to be able to Take that very problem that we tackle as researchers that we know that people on the ground are tackling from their point of view. They have the same problem of not knowing where to look. And it's our goal to build tools and um, a platform where members of the public can go to sift and sort through the information that the other generates. So based on your experience, I guess, sort of following the trail of digital breadcrumbs that people leave online through these conversations they have during uh, various stages of a crisis, what are some of the most uh, productive, useful software tools, uh, either in your lab or in the cloud, that you found for measuring those conversations? So we're building building some uh, some at-home 
application tools that aren't ready for release yet, although we'd like to see them uh, move towards that. Um, but we're building a, a, a software architecture um, that will be able to um, flexibly incorporate the next new social media that comes online next week and the week after that and the week after that. And so, um, and, and, and we're trying to extract and uh, take that, what we call heterogeneous information, so data comes in all different forms, and extract that and make that um, more uniform such that we process it and do things like um, automatic text recognition and information retrieval activities and data mining activities so that we can then process it and make sense of it and say, you know what, this has a probability of being good information. This, prob- this probably is no longer good information. Um, one of my students, Kate Starbird, is, um, has built what she calls an e-data visualizer that is able to visualize um, uh, large data sets of, of chatter. So in this case, it can be Twitter, but it can also be other forms of chatter or other, or other forms of activity. And then um, we capture that and visualize it, and we use that to try to make sense of what the threads are. That's not ready for prime time. It's an in-house analysis tool, but we, but we use these tools to try to imagine okay, what does an end user, what does somebody on the ground need that looks kind of like this but is much more user-friendly and simple to help them navigate when, through a problem when they're in the midst of a, of a problem. So when you're doing research uh, during a crisis, as the crisis is occurring, um, which of the tools that are readily available, like Google or Twitter or any of these uh, uh, sites that anyone has access to, which, which ones index information and deliver the most useful information quickest? I would say it varies for every event. And this is one of the, and that it, it's true for us, and this is, this is one of the messages I give to, say, um, campus um, communications folks to whom I speak um, on a regular basis. But they ask exactly that. What should we be using? Where should we be? And I say that, that, um, that their process, that their skills of journalism and analysis have to be not just in what the problem is about, but where to be for that particular event. And so what's happening is that we've not yet settled. We will eventually in time settle on more um, normative or typical ways in which we communicate during events, and they'll probably have different flavors, if you will, depending on the nature of the event, whether it's extended or really um, in time or highly localized geographically, and, and, and I think we'll, I think that's the goal, is in time that, we'll, that, that our lab is certainly trying to design a future where we can start stabilizing around those things, um, although certainly we're not the only ones who are trying to do that. I think that also is kind of an organic um, uh, uh, problem-solving activity that will that will that will rise um, from both deliberate and by accident accidental kind of design. But um, so I think we we do a, a whole host of things. We try to make sure that when we, when an event happens, that we are everywhere. We're doing a lot of the same things that um, that that I think a lot of people do. We get on Google. We start listening to the news, we start having a particular ear towards things. If we know people who are affected or we have people who, um, who are acquaintances of ours or colleagues of ours in emergency management or people who are sometimes involved um, in that particular area, we will contact them and try to get um, a comparison 
for, from that to that information to what's happening online, and then we start going online to look. And when we go online to look to see what's going on, we don't necessarily assume that what we see is in a record, an accurate record of what's happening. Often it is, but we try to constantly make sure that this matches with what's happening on the ground. And what we find is that it very often does. But as researchers, we have to still um, look at what's happening online, see how that matches up with what's happening on the ground, because what we want to do is be able to say what is happening online and how does that compare to what's happening on the ground. And very often we find that it's, there are some very interesting things that are happening there that are often quite accurate and very reflective of what's happening on the ground. Now, in your report, Crisis in a Networked World, which was published by the Social Science Computer Review, you wrote, and I'm paraphrasing here, that your research is primarily concerned with how the unofficial social media back channel might become formally incorporated into emergency management. That's right. If you were asked by an organization like FEMA or some organization responsible for emergency management to advise them on how to incorporate uh, social media into how they manage emergencies, just just sort of broadly, mm-hmm. uh, what would what would some of the the issues you would you would talk to them about be? So the first thing, so I think I think I think this is starting to happen, um, but what I see when I hear the discussion around this happening is um, rather than a discourse around aligning with citizen-generated activity, I see more of a discourse around monitoring that activity, um, which I understand why that's in place. Monitoring is not in and of itself a bad thing. But I think if we exclusively think about it as kind of keeping an eye on or watching it, rather than aligning with it and leveraging it and working with it and changing the um, organizational behavior or protocols on the formal response side to make it such that it can be adaptable and receptive to data, because some of the information that people generate is truly very good data, um, intelligence data, that, that, they ha- that, that, we, that we have to think about ways in which those, that, that that data can be received by the formal response, not just monitored and managed, but received and incorporated. I think there's, there's some formal mechanisms that can be put into place. I think there's some perspective changes that need to be put in place. And so I think that's a mix of social change, as well as to do this well, what we need are also technological solutions, not technological solutions that are in and of themselves kind of these cool gizmo things, but we need ways where um, both members of the public and formal response can go to the same places and destinations and contribute and um, verify or, 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 or mark as incorrect information. We have to think about information as being much more socially distributed. And so I think lots of processes and policies have to come from that basic change of perspective. What, one of the things you uh, uh, study, uh, talked about in this, uh, in this paper, in this report, is uh, the Virginia Tech tragedy. And, um, and I'd be really curious to know uh, what you learned about about how people use social media or how they used it specifically during uh, the Virginia Tech tragedy um, that surprised you. Yeah, what was striking there, so that was an example of where um, when 
the Virginia Tech shooting happened in uh, April 2007, so we're just a little bit beyond two years from now. Um, you might, if you can put yourself back in time to two years ago, most people, unless they were college students, hadn't heard about Facebook yet. Um, and when we spent time looking at that event, and we, we did some of this work with the Natural Hazard Center um, as well as students in my laboratory, um, we wanted to try to push beyond what was being reported in the popular media and really figure out what was going on there, if, if anything. Um, and so we spent time both at Virginia Tech to get a, an accounting of the events um, so that we understood how information moved. We could make some, in, we could make some good um, estimations about how information moved or could move across time and across populations there. And then we did a very manual process at that time, which is much more automated now, but of examining Facebook activity where there were real points of convergence, online convergence around the topic of, the Vir of Virginia Tech. Sarah Viewick is one of my students who really led the, um, the ethnographic investigation of this work. And what we found was that in a number of places, and we don't know if we found them all, we, we we, probably, we know we didn't find them all. We found enough, um, rather by surprise, we weren't looking for this, to show that um, it, at these places of convergence, groups of people were trying to determine who the names of the fatalities were. Um, this sounds really very morbid, but it was done out of real earnestness and, and concern. And it started... It correlated very much to the Virginia Tech press conference and release activity. So once the world knew how serious this event was, the people who were already online talking, talking about, gosh, I'm in my dorm room, I don't know what's going on, I'm okay, are you all right? Once they realized that, in fact, um, at first that 20 people were killed and then a couple of hours later they knew the, 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 the full extent of it, that launched a highly distributed problem-solving activity where people wanted to do something, but they, they couldn't. They were in their dorm rooms. They couldn't leave. Um, they were at some distance from Virginia Tech, but they had friends who were on campus. Um, and they started trying to figure out, gosh, I haven't heard from so-and-so. Do you have any information? I'm getting really worried. I haven't seen her on Facebook. And someone else would say, I've just talked to her parents, the news is bad, and they started trying to very carefully and accurately and with respect and almost to pay homage and honor the victims of the event um, to, to construct these, these lists. And what we found was that across the lists, they weren't all done in the same order, and they, not, not, none of them were complete. But across the total of the ones that we were able to find and examine, all the names had been discovered before Virginia Tech was able to release the names. And this isn't a comment. Many people will hear this research, and what they hear is from me, and this is not true, but what they hear is, oh, Virginia Tech should have released the names earlier, like, well, because everyone else knew them already. I'm like, well, that's, that's not true. Virginia Tech knew exactly what they had on their hands. They knew exactly who had been hurt and injured. Um, they had those identifications. They were doing uh, forensics and talking to next of kin. They couldn't release the information any earlier. What the event shows from a social media and emergency management point of view is that um, 
when people perceive that they need information, and in this case they really wanted information, even though they knew it would eventually come, they were just able to, without kind of any centralized organizing mechanism, figure out at least a piece of a puzzle, because there was nothing else for them to do. Is distributed problem-solving more reliable than top-down command and control-style problem-solving during the inventory stage of a crisis? I wouldn't go as far as saying one is more important than the other. I think we have to get away from thinking that top-down information management is the only way we can share information in a crisis. And I think very much when people are in the middle of an emergency, um, it's scary. They want to know what to do. They want to know how to take care of their families and their pets. Um, They like to be able to refer to official sources. They want to be able to do that. But they also have local decision-making to make. They can see that the fire is right over there, and that looks a little different than what's being reported on the news. And, and the, the website is down, you know, for the local emergency management because it's getting so many hits. Okay, what do I do? I've got my kids here. I've got my pet. I, they say to evacuate this way. That seems to make sense, but I'm going to check and see what everyone else is doing to make sure this is the best decision. So you can see where there's a mix there in people's minds and in their actions between looking for authorized top-down sources as well as pulling from whatever means they can to make the best decision they think they can for their particular circumstances. When disasters happen, and this is where maybe the difference is between a disaster and an emergency, they're large-scale. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody really truly knows. It's a changing situation from moment to moment. And I think when you're in this situation, you ultimately know that. And you know that you have to put almost a bricolage of information together. And that's why I think it's not one or the other. It's a combination. And we have to, think, we have to start thinking about it in an organized fashion as a combination of kind of lateral, distributed, emergent um, information gathering along with, um, ofi- along with official sources that have also, that we know and can, can, can trust have paid attention to those peer-to-peer sources as well. It's a mix. How were most students made aware of the shootings? Um, on the Virginia Tech campus, um, so it's very interesting. Those who were nearby, of course, heard the shots, but the campus is a big one and not everyone heard them. Many, many students apparently heard from their parents who called them to make sure they were all right because the event happened first at 7 a.m. in the morning and then in the 9 o'clock hour it was on a Monday morning many students were still asleep and so it was their parents who called them after the first event in, uh, in the 7 o'clock hour hit national news they were woken up by their parents and they got the news that way and and what did they do once they were informed well once they were informed of that um, the Virginia Tech was sending out um, notices to students and faculty and staff, letting them know to the degree that they knew what was going on. So they sent out mail after the first event saying, you know, that this event has happened. Um, It was cautionary, 
but it was, at that point, no one had any reason to think it would turn into a mass uh, shooting event. Um, so, so at that point, students were aware and cautious, very rapid, but, very, but soon after that message came out, the, the second shooting event commenced, and Virginia Tech started sending out messages saying, something else is happening, please stay in your rooms, doors, stay away from your windows. And so while those messages were coming out, you know, during and just what turned out to be at the very end of this 20-minute um, event, um, they already knew something was going on, but they didn't really know what still at this point. So they were told to stay in their rooms. And so what they did was, um, what anybody would do if they couldn't leave their rooms, they had just woken up, they, they, weren't, they, they didn't get to eat until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, um, they turned on the TV, they went online to figure out what was going on. So they listened to the news, but then they also got onto instant messaging, got onto Facebook, um, and it's there that they were able to see if somebody was online, if one of their friends was online, then they were okay because by, by virtue of their very activity. So it was the, the non-presence of students, of other of friends and acquaintances that was the worrisome thing. If they weren't on Facebook, if they weren't on instant messaging, that was, that was the, that's where the concerns were. Your research found that once Virginia Tech released an official statement with the names of the deceased, uh, it effectively put an end to the distributed problem-solving activity occurring in the back channel. Is there a lesson there for those tasked with communicating on behalf of an organization during a crisis? Hmm. Possibly. What I would say, actually, what happened there was that the back-channeling communication had settled because it had already kind of arrived. It had already reached a point of um, not completion, but the, the, the best it could do. So I'm, I, it may have continued, you know, if there had been another uh, reason why Virginia Tech had to wait another uh, six hours or something like that. I mean, and Virginia Tech got the information out very, very rapidly. Um, there's, there's no criticism there at all. It just created the conditions for us to be able to look at what was going on. Would I make a connection between that event and what emergency responders need to do? Um, I think the you know, for other kinds of events that are where there's much more unknowns about what to do, I think frequent updates are really important. And not just, and very often emergency managers, managers I think, will say, well, we don't have any new information. And I understand that. They don't have any new information yet. But the frequent, I think, updating to say this is our current status, this is the current status, we're still here, here's currently what we know, nothing has changed from, you know, 15 minutes ago or an hour ago. I think the rapidity, um, the speed um, that people are looking for information and need to take action is very, very fast now. And so those official sources have to keep up with the expectations for that speed. I think that's, that's one thing that is certain. You also found um, that through social media, people on the scene and off the scene were able to problem-solve together about the identities of uh, the victims mm -hmm. and essentially get that news out before this official announcement. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that says anything about the credibility or trustworthiness of sites like Wikipedia that approach research uh, in a distributed computing fashion. Yeah, no, I think it says a lot about it. Um, I think it says 
that um, you know I will not I will not at all say that you know that we, we we all have to be critical consumers of all information we get, no matter where it comes from, even if it comes from um, the you know the, the wisest of journals. We have to we have to kind of put an eye to it and say, okay, well under these conditions this was true. Can I make is that generalizable to these conditions? Um, I will say that 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 activity that happens on Wikipedia and on Facebook and, and in other places is that there's a remarkable amount of self-policing. The people who, I think especially in the case of Wikipedia, who participate there, their goal is to have good, accurate information. That is part of the value system for a majority of the people who Really, who who are dedicated to working uh, to develop Wikipedia material? It's not everyone's value, but it's a lot of it's kind of a core value. Um, and so, I think that it's very often trustworthy and trust, trustworthy in the sense of being well. This is as good as we have right now. I mean, there is no single truth. There is no perfect information. When things are under flux, we know about things after the fact. And I think that trustworthiness, and this is something looking on right now with a student of mine, Sarah Vuig, where we're trying to talk about and explain how it is that people make decisions under these uncertain situations, where they're trying to judge information as, you know, how helpful is it? Is, is, can I, I know I'm taking some risk in making some decision around this piece of information that I have here, but I think it's the best local decision I can make right now in time. It's, it's, it's good enough, and I have enough information to trust to trust it as much as I do the next piece, the next thing over. For organizational communicators, how important is their website um, as a source of communications during a time of crisis? And would you advise that most websites uh, be be mobile friendly as well? It, it, certainly. I mean, I think that's absolutely that's absolutely where we're we're going and where we've we've gone already in terms of being. Uh, mobile friendly. I, the the website does need to have um, a, a presence, and um, not not only does it need to be well designed, it needs to be um, pretty uh, robust and be able to handle a lot of hits um, unexpectedly. Um, because that's often what happens. There can be a really excellent website by um, by an agency, and then when something goes wrong, it's just it, it, it it's rendered unusable unusable just because people can't get to it. So there's 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 some support there that's even behind the sort of the usability and the frequency of the updating. Hypothetical question. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, I mean, obviously, the the nature of the fatalities at Virginia Tech uh, were violent and tragic, and the victims were totally helpless. Yeah. Um, do you think that compelled volunteers to accurately self police? their list building activities and and here's the hypothetical part if it was a completely separate crisis mm-hmm. something different and um, there was a, a crisis of some kind uh, that resulted that was the result of what some people uh, saw as bad foreign policy or mm. politically motivated would you expect to see the same level of accuracy I guess I'm not sure yet. Um, I I think there will be. I think there will be. I think political crises are different, um, and and so far we've not taken that under our pretty large purview. Um, I think I think the pandemic 
actually has shown in a little bit in our research that the way, and again, we care about how people get information and what they do with it and how they produce it and some of these low-level mechanics of it. And I think those characteristics are different under something that's diffused like a pandemic where people still have to continue living, continue sort of normal routines even when there's something wrong. And I think political crises um, have features that, that are also going to distinguish them from natural hazards and unexpected events where there's a clear kind of external agent um, who had bad intentions. Things around um, political, um, that are political because of political policy, I think, I, I don't know what will happen there. What we, what we do know is that people will, what people will take the, um, use social media and take whatever means possible to send a message or to participate and to do something, if, if that's their goal. Um, I think, I still believe that the overarching nature of people in emergency situations is to do something and to do something productive and helpful. Um, I do think that we do have to be aware that there are opportunities then in those cases for those who don't want to do that to enter malicious information. And so in our work, for example, we are working with people who care a lot about network security, network privacy, cybersecurity, and trying to bring those mechanisms that recognize where there is deliberately bad information in inserting it into the system, if you will, and this, the system I mean, the, the, the big system, the big social technical system, and try to isolate those as well and be discerning about those as well. I don't think our fear of that should dictate our willingness to believe that good information is also out there. But I do think we need to take care of both. Your Crisis in a Networked World report includes a visual timeline plotting official sources uh, and social media interactions against the chain of events that occurred on this that horrible day. Uh, when I looked at it, I I I was actually I, I had an emotional re- response. I, I felt grief yeah. um, because I'm playing out all these different scenarios in my head about how lives might have been saved if communication occurred quicker. Uh, my reaction to text, to the text portion of the report, is more cerebral. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it about timelines or visualizations of data that make it easier for us to appreciate their impact on a visceral gut level? Mm. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good question. We certainly live with that. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel that uh, we still uh, live with the Virginia Tech event even long after. It happened, and even though we weren't directly affected, because we do um, we do refer to that timeline, and we are very aligned with the interests of the victims there and what happened there. Um, um, timelines can be constructed, you know, after the event. Um, they they are they're constructed as they go as they can be constructed as they happen, and more and more data mashups are allowing this. One of my students, Sophia Liu, is just presenting some work on. They show temporal mashups and how that's changing how we visualize and experience disaster, not only afterward, but real time. And then what that means at later on as a kind of, um, as almost like a, 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 a cultural heritage kind of item. You know, something that really marks 
in in an important way what happened in that event. I think that's what it is. I think it takes apart these step by step actions, um, and it and, and rather than having it sort of packaged up and saying yes, this is what happened there, and it was really terrible. We're able now, with certainly um, unintentionally, it's just with grassroots activity and social media, with spatiotemporal mashups, we're getting those kinds of views. Even if we're not formal analysts as we are, um, we're going to be able to start seeing those kinds of things and having a record of what these events are. And we're going to be able to understand how different populations are differently affected by a disaster event. Rather than have a single account, we'll have multiple narratives. And this is, again, something my student, Sophia Liu, is working on for her dissertation. Final question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've completed what, what could be the largest body of research on how people use social media uh, during a crisis in the world. Specifically, what types of policy, cha- policy changes are you hoping your research will prompt? I think when I think about it at a high level, as best as I'm able to understand this, and this is where I, I mean, when I, and when I say that, I mean very much I want our work um, to be part of a discussion with those who are able to um, implement policy that's really longstanding and viable. It may be very easy for me to say, oh, this needs to be changed and this needs to be changed. This needs to be a participatory discussion about what this means. But when I think about it in the big picture, I think that the interface is how I talk about it between the formal activities, the agency response activities, and those who are being served, members of the public, that interface, and it's not just a computational one, it's a social one, we need to think about how to make that more permeable. We need to understand that it exists and that we need to move information across it in ways that are more fluid, more um, that, that, that have multiple points of entry and exit. Um, and I think for that to happen, that there has to be um, destinations for that data and the, 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 the change that that would cause and affect on the agency side of things. So there has to be a destination for that data. Um, what we're trying to do is build technical support that enables information from the public to cross over, if you will, that interface, circle on, and I'm doing a big hand wave that you can't see here on the podcast, circle to the um, formal response side so that it's aligned and then fed back to members of the public. So this is not an oppositional thing, us and them. It's it's us and them together. It's really rethinking the whole system as something as much more um, a socially distributed uh, a system of information exchange. Leisha Palin, Assistant Professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Eric. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.